This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media. And today, I'll be joined by Nicole Martin, CT's chief impact officer, and Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. We'll talk first about the crisis taking place at our southern border and how the church is responding. Then, we'll be joined by Tom Nichols, a staff writer at The Atlantic, to talk about the Durham report and what it says about the Russia probe during the Trump administration. In our final segment, I'll be joined by CT's Kate Shelnut to talk about a story she wrote about a ministry called Chi Alpha and a serial sexual predator who worked in their midst. Stay with us. All right, joining me now for this conversation about what's happening at the border are Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Russ, Nicole, welcome. Thank you. Good to see you, Mike. All right, to set this up for listeners to kind of catch up where we are, last week, the Biden administration allowed something called Title 42 to expire. This is a section of the law that allows the government to temporarily block entry into the U.S. during a public health emergency. It was invoked in 2020 by the Trump administration and was in March, right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's notable, it's worth mentioning, I think, that there was a New York Times report that showed that Stephen Miller, Trump's chief advisor on immigration policy, had actually been advocating multiple times before the pandemic to invoke Title 42 and close the border. So for a certain segment of the right, the appetite for this was in the air. What Title 42 did is that it meant that our asylum and immigration system was essentially frozen. It was essentially closed. And people who entered illegally were as quickly as possible returned to Mexico, often within a matter of hours. Now that it's expired, immigration and asylum are governed by something called Title VIII. This opens the border again. It creates opportunities for immigration and asylum, but it also carries much more severe penalties for those who crossed illegally. So for instance, if you're caught under Title 42, you're caught in the U.S., you're expelled right away, but there's no long-term consequences. With Title VIII, there's a longer kind of due process to be expelled, But if you're caught entering illegally, you're banned from legal entry for another five years. In the build-up to this, there's been a surge at the border in the weeks before Title 42 expired. Expectations were high that the surge would only get worse. Former President Trump, you know, a few days before it, warned that this would be a day of infamy. It would destroy our country. But that actually hasn't panned out. I think a lot of observers have been surprised that the border crossings have actually gone down. That said, there's a real humanitarian crisis happening here. Border officials, they're saying 14,000 people are crossing a day, that there's 20,000 people in detention facilities, and all of those detention facilities are over capacity. And there's another 155,000 migrants gathered at the border in places like Juarez waiting to cross over. So this has been a political hot button for a long time. You can go back to Trump's rhetoric. You can go back to the Obama administration and and battles over the status of the dreamers, you know, children of undocumented people who were born here. We've also had in the last year these activities by Republican governors like Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis who were busing and flying asylum seekers to sanctuary cities like Chicago and New York or to Martha's Vineyard. 
But you also had Democrat governors in Arizona and Colorado who were doing the same thing at various points. Russell, this is an issue you've written about, spoken about for many years. When you think about where the church is on this question, how would you kind of describe the landscape and what's happening in the church right now? Well, let me take it in two ways. I think we see something that's happening in the country, and then we have something that's happening or could happen in the church. When it comes to the country, I think that what we see at the border is an example both of what's wrong with America and what's right with America. And when I say what's wrong with America, I mean the fact that there really is no workable solution anymore when it comes to definitively dealing with this. Because for a long time, what many of us who've been working on this were working on is let's pair very tough border security with policies to be able to help people who are here already to find some pathway to making it right. It's very obvious now that those kinds of compromises and reforms just aren't going to happen anytime in the future that I can see. Of course, things can change really rapidly, but not anywhere soon in this environment. But it's also a sign of what's right with America. I mean, if you think about what Ronald Reagan used to say during the Cold War, it's a sign when the wall comes down, or even if people just think the wall might be porous, which direction are people going? And you don't have Americans trying to flee to Venezuela. You have Venezuelans and Salvadorans and others throughout Latin America who really do want a start at a new life. I spent some time at some of these detention facilities on the border talking to people. I remember being struck by asking a child there, why did you come? And he said, to get away from the tax collectors, which I had in my mind, IRS agent. But tax collector doesn't mean that in that context. Mm -hmm. It means essentially a a violent gang leader who's extorting Mm -hmm. money, which, of course, is exactly what tax collector is in the New Testament context. I mean, Zacchaeus Mm -hmm. was not an IRS agent. Uh, This is what he was doing, is extorting people with money, with threats of violence. And so it's a sign of the fact that America still is exceptional as a place of hope. Where it comes to the church is the church really has an opportunity to model to the rest of the world what it means to be a reconciled body, but not just a reconciled body, a reconciled body where we bear one another's burdens. That includes some of these very difficult issues. So I've said for years, people of goodwill can disagree about what are the specific policies that are going to fix the immigration system or the border system or whatever. What we really can't disagree about are immigrants themselves and people created in the image of God themselves. And the church has an opportunity to model that and to show that to the rest of the world. Nicole, how do you think that's going? How do you see the church's response and how it's being received? Well, it's an interesting question because I think immigration brings a clash, especially in evangelical churches, of two realities. One is the charitable abroad reality, where evangelical churches tend to be very generous and charitable, especially in missions with people abroad going in different contexts and serving those communities in those contexts. And at the same time, this apprehension, this fear that we have when that country comes into the neighborhood, moves in next door. And there's a bunch of research that kind of demonstrates that we have a different expectation 
for our neighbor, the person next door to us, than we do for the person overseas. So when I am serving the Guatemalans in Guatemala on a mission trip, there's a great deal of compassion. But when a Guatemalan moves next door to me, there's a great deal of fear. So immigration kind of brings those two realities together. How do I reconcile this fear that I have, fear that comes from a wide variety of places, fear for my own protection, fear for my job, fear for my children? How do I reconcile that with this desire that I have that I believe is driven by God to care for those who are in need? So immigration brings up those realities. And I think it's really split. I think Russell said it well. I think there's a great deal of hope knowing that we are serious about this tension of a strong border and strong policies with great compassion. But also going back to Title VIII means going back to something that's been set years and years and years ago. And where will the actual change come in? Where will we see, don't just go online, but here's the way we're going to help you go online to to do your application. Where will we see a sense of holding firm to uh, what we say is a, a policy for entering this country, but also creating access so that people can use the systems that we've created. So I think it brings out the tensions, but I do think this is a time for the church to wrestle with a theology of the other, not just the other over there, but now the other who may be right here. Yeah, and another good aspect of this is that, as a friend of mine was saying yesterday, if you look at all of the fear-mongering about the Mm -hmm. hordes of people, the caravans, the whatever, you mentioned the health emergency and the way that Stephen Miller and others way before COVID ever happened, we're wanting to use this idea of disease vectors, that these are mm. diseased people bringing things into the country. We saw that with Ebola mm-hmm. earlier, about a decade ago. That that kind of fear-mongering, it's really not working anymore mm. the way that it did. I mean, yeah, you have stunts that are going on of flying asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard and that sort of thing. But this sense of the caravans are coming, they're going to destroy your country, that just doesn't win elections anymore. Mm-hmm. It doesn't move people anymore. And so that's a reason to say, okay, well, maybe just your normal, regular people in the country, as opposed to your cable news enthusiasts, are really ready for something different. Yeah, it's, it strikes me. I mean, I think one of the things that we forget is the power of the story of the American immigrant. I mean, you look yeah, yeah. at you look at what's happened racially in America, you look at the growth of the middle class, you see a lot of second-generation Chinese-Americans, second-generation Nigerian-Americans who are contributing tremendously to the economy, the innovation, the good things that are happening in the U.S. And it strikes me that at the core of a lot of the fear is this scarcity mindset mm-hmm. that, you know, if, if we let too many people in, they're going to take our jobs, they're going to, mm-hmm. you know, prices are going to go up, it's going to be, you know, it's a matter of competition as opposed to being a matter of like, no, no, this is actually a contribution to the economy. Mm-hmm. It's also striking, like, there's cognitive dissonance, I think, in the moment where there is a lot of anxiety about immigration. And there's a massive uh, a worker shortage right. in the United States right now. You know, I was just at a restaurant just a you know crummy restaurant the other day and they had they, they needed six people to work they had two people show up for work that day there's lots of dissonance around it and at the same time you know to me the busing stuff that took place a few months back it's very trollish mm-hmm. and yet there was something to me that came out of that where you saw this reactivity from the mayor of Chicago the mayor of New York City both of whom said you guys got to stop this we can't handle this and in Texas 
it's tenfold or a hundredfold that they're trying to sort of manage the people. And to me, that doesn't speak to like the righteousness of using people like political pawns or whatever. What it does speak to is this is something that nobody seems to actually want to take action to fix. Mm. And it's like, if, okay, if we want to have the, we, if we want to have the border open, we want to have these people come into our country, then let's make sure that we have the capacity to process people and to handle it properly. So there's not a two year long backlog, which is the average right now for someone's asylum claim to get processed. And then on the other side, again, this sort of scarcity mindset that just says, no, 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 no. And so you get the gridlock and we're stuck with this horrendous status quo. The people who suffer the most are people who are running from gang violence in Haiti, running from organized crime in Ecuador, running from the total economic and political collapse in Venezuela. It seems to me once again, we're in this place where fear and anxiety drive policy and nobody wins. I mean, it's it's bad for everyone. Well, and it's also good for everyone in the mm. in the various ideological activist uh, communities. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you really can't get anything through, because there's one group of people for whom it really is helpful for them with their base if they're able to say the country's under assault and about to collapse mm. and mm. Uh, you know so forth. We're under attack. And it's helpful for another group of people in an activist base to be able to say, you know, I remember we were trying to, we had the votes to get something done on dreamers mm-hmm. in about 2013, 2014, we had the votes to do it. And some of the, not all of them, but some of the activist groups who agreed with us on immigration were saying, no, 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 let's kill it because we want to hold out for the whole deal. And we're able to say to people, if you vote to protect dreamers right now, you're actually going against us because we want uh, we want something massive. So there are people for whom the status quo really is in their interest. Mm. And it takes everybody else saying, no, we really can't do something different than this. And I mean, don't you think it kind of taps into political ideologies also? And this is why I think it's so important to not allow your politics to guide your theology, but, you know, the other way around. But there are people who will say, well, it's the government's job to make sure that we secure the borders. It's the government's job to make sure that the process is right. But those same people are often saying, no, let's go for a smaller government. The government is too involved. The government is too engaged. Well, who's going to solve it? I mean, you, I mean, how are we going to, how are we going to work through this in a way where we do empower the government to work with us, for us, but also what's the role of the church and church serving organizations to step mm-hmm. in? And I think I've been so encouraged by that when you watch, you know, the busloads of people who are dropped off in crazy places like in Martha's Vineyard, you see the church. rising up to say, Mm -hmm. I'm here. We saw this same thing in Ukraine where in Poland and and in other parts of the surrounding countries, people were driving in their cars saying, just jump in and we'll take care of you. But that shouldn't be the only solution. So Mm -hmm. this is a good time for the church to wrestle if we choose to go into the issues that we need to be talking about. Yeah. And this is one place where I think the church actually does get a bad rap. Yeah. An undeservedly bad rep, because I know on the on the border issue, for instance, I would have to deal with church after church after church calling and saying, "We want to send people there to care for the people that are there. We want to send yeah. our disaster relief group to be yeah. there caring for people." I have to say, "You can't do that. The government won't let you do that. Mm-hmm. There are other things you could do, but not that." So, just, in many cases, they don't know what to do, but they want to, yeah. and that's a good sign. On that point, I mean, what can churches do and what can individual Christians do and what are ways the church is contributing in meaningful ways? 
Well, I mean, one of those ways is identifying asylum seekers and refugees and newly situated Americans or potential Americans in your communities and actually serving them. And I think churches are doing that all over the place. Nobody really pays attention to it, but that happens all the time. I mean, I'm in Mm -hmm. Nashville with a large Kurdish community, churches completely connected and caring for them. Same thing happening in Minnesota with Sudanese communities. And so just asking that question, who are the people around us who are there? I mean, imagine being newly in a place where you don't speak the language, your your children are are newly adapting to a place. People need not just sort of services and care, they need friends. Hmm. And churches that can do that are really helping a lot. And I think there are tons of organizations who are coming alongside churches to help. I mean, the number one thing though for me is allowing pastors to be equipped with the right information, pastors and leaders to be equipped with the right information to share with their churches. The challenge we have in this time is that pastors are either all politics and all policy every Sunday, so much so that it overburdens the congregation, or there are no politics and no policies any Sunday. So you have this kind of sad bifurcation that I come to church to either worship or be equipped, but not both. So mm-hmm. there are great ways to be equipped and, and for pastors and leaders to learn. I love what World Relief is doing, the ways that they have pathways to come alongside churches, pathways for individuals to join. There are tons of other organizations. I mean, if you just Google Christian immigration organization, you will find lots of options and opportunities and you can find whatever works for your theological strain. (laughs) You do not have to, you know, join World Relief and and agree with everything they said. You can be present. So I think Mm -hmm. it's information and I think it's joining up with organizations who are already involved. Yeah. And I'll just chime in on that too, because I think what both of you point out that's so helpful is to actually make a difference in something, you kind of have to get your head out of the national cable yeah. news way of thinking about this. These are local stories. These are local communities. These are right. individuals. These are real, ordinary people. And that's really the place where the church in particular can make such a difference. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Well, we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. All right, joining us now for this uh, next conversation is Tom Nichols. Tom's a staff writer at The Atlantic and a professor emeritus at the Naval War College. Tom, welcome to the Bulletin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, let me set this up for a moment. This this past week, the, the Durham report was released. This was an investigation of the investigation of, of sort of the Russian probe 
This began in 2019. The Attorney General, Bill Barr, appointed John Durham to look into wrongdoing and the origins and the process of the Russia probe that took place during the Trump administration. You know, since it's come out, looking at the reaction, it's kind of like a Rorschach test. If you listen to people at sort of the left end of the spectrum, they'll say, oh, this was a dud, Durham failed. You can compare it to the Mueller investigation and see three dozen indictments and seven guilty pleas, whereas the Durham investigation only resulted in three indictments and only one of those led to a, a guilty plea. And yet you look over on the right and they'll point to other conclusions. They'll point out that Durham said the initial Russia probe was rushed, that it's you know departed from standard procedure, that the FBI demonstrated bias. So it's interesting to me. I look at this and I, you know, you see that there was all this hype that kind of built up to the release of the Mueller report. And because of that, when the thing was released and because of the way it was released through the attorney general, it landed with a little bit of a thud. If you've been listening to the media on the right, the Durham report sort of lands in the same way. And so, like I said, it feels like it's this Rorschach test. People are kind of seeing what they want to see. Tom, what do you what do you see? I think the people on the right, you know, the right wing media ecosystem that's trying to turn this into a big deal, you can almost see them sweating with the caloric effort to try to make something out of this damp squib of a report that basically says, I spent four years and millions of dollars and I traveled the world and I came up dry. So let me just say, as John Durham, I don't like the way the FBI did things, even though in the report. I, John Durham, am also going to say that I think the opening of the investigation was legit and something the FBI had to do. If a guy at the Justice Department, a prosecutor doesn't like the way the FBI does things and there are no you know, detailed accusations or indictment, that's, um, I think, I, I don't want to steal this line from somebody else, but they said that's not a special counsel report, that's an op-ed. Durham came to the conclusion that I think Barr intended from the minute they opened this, which was to cast out on the procedure, which was to mollify Trump, you know, because Trump wanted it. And Barr, for all of his now, his reinvention as a Trump critic and constitutional defender, Barr was all about making sure that Donald Trump's psychic needs were serviced by the Justice Department. To me, this it's not even a Rorschach test because that means people would really have to disagree about what's in it. I think one thing we've learned from the Dominion lawsuit is that people on Fox have no problem going out and saying things they absolutely don't believe in, but mm. you know, serving up the, you know the junk food to the audience anyway. Like I said, you can almost see, you know, the 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 amount of energy they're burning to say, you know, the this the Durham report, the fallout, you know, and. I'm actually surprised after four years of what a thud, uh, you know, Mike, as you just said, that it landed with. Because you would have figured after all that effort, Durham would have at least tried to come up with something that at least looks like it was worth four years and millions of dollars. Tom, I guess what's irritating to me is as somebody, my dad was with the FBI in the 60s. And one of the things that we see happening right now is that there is this hostility toward legitimate law enforcement that's coming from a very different place than where we expected it. The defund the police sort of rhetoric on the far left, we now see far more of that on the far right with just a questioning of all of these legitimate law enforcement offices. Is this something you think is temporary or is this the reality we're going to have to deal with? Yeah, it's such a great observation because so many times I find myself listening to the Republicans talking about the FBI and I'm like, 
wow, when did Noam Chomsky become the head of the Republican, <laughs> you know, program committee? You know, I'm I'm old enough to remember when people talk that way about the FBI, you know, on the far left. It's indistinguishable. It's a government within a government. It's a state within a state. They're mm. renegades. They do whatever they want. I mean, wow, it's like J. Edgar Hoover never died. To your larger point, Dr. Moore, I think the bigger problem here is that the Republicans have become hostile to any institution of American government that contradicts them or limits their grasping for power or intrudes on their reality. And the FBI is just one of many such institutions that have just gotten in their way that way. It doesn't matter what the institutions are. I think it's especially shocking to anybody. I'm a former Republican. You know, it's shocking to anybody that used to be on the right to see Republicans attacking the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, you know, are siding with the Kremlin and cheering on the Russians. You know, uh, we could go through a whole list of institutional attacks that people on the right have made against the structures of American constitutionalism and government simply because either it offends them to have their reality contradicted or because some of these institutions have acted as structural impediments to their seeking power. You said a, a phrase when you were talking about the Durham report that I wrote down because I thought it was brilliant. You said that this is just another way for Donald Trump's psychic needs to be serviced by the Justice Department. <laughs> when millions of dollars and tons of hours are spent to service the psychic needs of one individual, how in the world are we ever going to redeem some layer of truth in society. And I, I cannot hide this tiny, tiny fear. What happens if in 2024, there's this groundswell of this is exactly what we want? Are we setting ourselves up for more servicing of psychic needs? And what in the world are we supposed to do? Well, we're setting ourselves up for an authoritarian government. I mean, I think it's really important to remember that our institutions, and, and I'll channel James Madison here, I mean, our institutions were not meant to handle this kind of internal attack by vile people. We're just not structured for it. The entire American constitutional system is predicated on trust and a certain amount of virtue in the holders of power. We don't have one of those 500-page constitutions that tries to anticipate, you know, on a if on a Tuesday the president tries to fire, you know, the police chief, then on a Wednesday, we don't <laughs> we we don't assume anybody's going to do that. What I'm more worried about, Nicole, than a groundswell. I mean, Trump's cult of personality is durable and is going to stay with him no matter what. What I worry about is that millions of people buy into the gaslighting and the moral equivocation that says, eh, Trump, Biden, two sides of the same coin. I really don't even remember. How bad could it be? Uh, January 6th mm. was, you know, it was just a thing. It happened. It was a one-off where people just convince themselves, you know, well, Trump's an authoritarian, Trump's a neo-Nazi, and Joe Biden's a commie, you know? And, and because I think in some ways that framing just makes it easy for people to yeah. remain where they are and to either not vote or to keep voting to say, well, I don't, I didn't want Trump to be the nominee, but I have to support the nominee of the party because the alternative is communism, you know, and all these other rationalizations. I, I, I'm not worried. About, I, I mean, if anything, I, Trump should be on TV every day as far as I'm concerned. 
because mm. those independent and otherwise not paying very much attention voters, and, and I'm not being critical of them. I mean, nobody, you know, they're normal people. They're not like us. They don't live, you know, sort of attached to politics yeah. every day. Yeah. But the more they see of Trump, I think that they get reminded, oh, yeah, this guy is deeply emotionally unstable and, and a horrible person and, you know, really dangerous. But I worry about that other problem of just people saying, eh, you know, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, right. they kind of throw up their hands and go, eh. Let me throw something in. It's maybe not a counterfactual, but just to come at this from a different angle. I've spent a fair amount of time the last few years looking at abusive circumstances in the church, you know, narcissistic leaders, unhealthy communities. And there's one in particular that, that's been on my mind as I've thought about this, where you had a pastor, very domineering, misogynistic culture. It was a real mess. And I remember reading one day from, you know, not just a sort of trollish online account, but but a respected scholar talking about this church tells this story about how husbands in this church would have weigh-in nights for their wives and daughters, wow. you know, making sure that they were whatever. <laughs> totally made up, right? <laughs> like, totally did not happen. In fact, if you trace the story back, there was a parody account of the church that did, you know, posted something of this one night and the punchline of the joke was we'll see who gets extra guacamole right <laughs> and the joke's on point but it was shared as though it were as mm-hmm. though it were true and what got to me as i you know as i reported on that story what got to me was there were a number of stories like that that were kind of made up of whole cloth or these massive exaggerations and in in thinking about the Mueller report the durham report kind of the the world of storytelling around donald trump there's a lot of well, for instance, with the Mueller report, there was this buildup for years of you know the walls are closing in, and there's these wild conspiracy theories at times being told, and I just wonder to what extent, like because of the anxiety around it, because of the extent that the conspiracy theories spread, you know, because of some of the wild stuff that was in the Steele dossier and all of that, did we numb ourselves to the facts that were bad enough as they were? Right. Like maybe there wasn't like sophisticated collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. But you know what? He went on television and asked Vladimir Putin to hack Hillary Clinton's emails. Right. You know, it's like, did they fail to collude because they didn't want to collude or because they were incompetent to collude? Your point about getting numb to the truth is really important. And this is one place where during the whole Trump Russia thing, I was cautioning friends on the left saying, you know, you're not going to find video of Vladimir Putin, you know, issuing orders to Donald Trump in an alley in Vienna in exchange for nuclear codes. But what you're going to find is going to be terrifyingly awful anyway. They did collude. They did ask for help. And the Russians, they were eagerly accepting it. But people have gotten used to the idea that nothing is knowable. It's not that people believe stuff that's wrong. It's that they have come to accept that reality is negotiable. It's almost like a kind of, you know, the ultimate triumph of postmodernism, right? That reality, Mm. the text is whatever you think it says. Reality is however it's interpreted through your eyes. Mm. Tom, you made your acting debut this week on Succession and, and wrote about it in a piece of The Atlantic that we'll link to in the show notes. And I think I know your answer to this question because having read your book, Our Own Worst Enemy, but how much of what we see with the misinformation and disinformation is really coming from the outside, whether through cable news, misinformation, disinformation, or Russian troll farms and, and Facebook memes? And how much of it is just us 
This is just who we are as a country right now. That's a great question. And Russell, thank you for reading the book. Appreciate that. But it's a little of both. You know, the the stuff that comes from Russia and the troll farms and even the pollution that pours out of places like Fox, you can't plant seeds on cement. There has to be some fertile ground there for that stuff to take root. That's the point I was making in the book, that when you have a very narcissistic and bored and affluent society with just looking for life to be more interesting, that's a market waiting to be served. You know, that's a market waiting to be served by people who say, hey, you know what? You're not just a guy that works, you know, at a grain feed store. You are a crusading, anti-pedophile, you know, constitutional warrior, blah, 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 because it just, I mean, that's catnip if you're not centered on, you know, family and community and faith and all the other things that used to give people's lives meaning in an earlier time. I mean, I think back, I got my start as a scholar in the old Soviet days, I was a Sovietologist back when we still needed those. And, you know, the Soviets used to flood the zone with all kinds of conspiracy theories, but it's almost like the American system had a better immune system. The American people had a better immune system against that stuff. The two that the Soviets really succeeded with was that the U.S. government is intentionally flooding black neighborhoods with, with drugs to kill black people. And the other that got some traction, and you'll still see it pop up now and then, even though the Soviets, after the Cold War, they admitted they'd made it up, was that the army invented AIDS mm-hmm. at Fort Detrick. I love that they were so specific about, you know, where. Mm-hmm. It's like a Stephen King novel, you know, that, that AIDS was invented by the army at Fort Detrick. But, but, you know, these things didn't catch on in broader society, in part because you didn't have you know, news channels that would pump this sludge all day long. But also you had millions of Americans who would look at something like that and they'd go, hmm, yeah, <laughs> you know, they'd kind of go, ah. yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and I think, mm-hmm. I think too, to go back to the, one of the things I wrote in the book, it's that we're lonely. You know, it's, it is a great corrective in society to be, I'm a big fan of Cheers, and in one of my books, I mentioned Cliff Clavin, you know, the know-it-all mailman, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that was beautiful about Cheers is every time Cliff would say, well, you know, uh, it's a known fact, <laughs> the other people at the bar would look and shake their head and say, Cliffy, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. When, when we congregated more socially and someone would say, you know, I think Jewish space lasers were starting forest fires so that the Italian voting machines, you know, blah, blah, blah used to be that if you were in public, somebody would turn to you and say, hey, Bob, that's nuts. Right. <laughs> they call yeah, it yeah, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, I'm going to call your wife and just tell her to get the couch ready and you need to take some quality yeah. time. Um, but we don't have yeah. that anymore. People can sit there for hours with their, like, like, you know, monkeys in an experiment with this, you know, stuff just being pipe directly into their brains through their eyeballs on YouTube and cable and other places. And the Russians, to come back to your question, Russell, the the Russians, I think, were very adept at knowing that and saying, let's target those outlets. Let me bring it back here for us as we as we wrap up. You you used the phrase earlier, common sense. And I when I thought about that, I thought, I mean, there's there's sort of this American idea, you know, whether it's Benjamin Franklin talks about it, Tocqueville talks about it. This idea that kind of what made America America was this common story, right? 
And that certainly seems to be one of the elements that's lost. When I think about the loss of common sense, that's that's a big part of it, that we don't have this sense of, quote unquote, national unity. In fact, it's so oppositional now that you have competing narratives about who's the most aggrieved in our country mm-hmm. these days, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When you think about that challenge, and let me just throw it to all of you on this front because I have no clue. When you think about that challenge, how do we address that? How do you tell a unifying story? How do you how do you break through grievance to something more coherent and coherent in the sense of bringing people together? Well, that's hard. I think that it's not a matter of trying to win with competing narratives or stories. I think, again, if the well is poisoned, then no matter how much good water you put into it, it's not going to solve that problem. One of the qualities that I miss, if you ask me about what I remember as a kid in the 60s, I'm 62. So as what I remember as a kid in the 60s and the early 70s about the people I grew up with, it's a virtue that I very much associated with Americans until recently, and that is stoicism. Mm. You know, one of my friends points out that what's happened to America now is in both structure and culture, the balkanization of our politics, that instead of being, you know, Americans from different parts of the country who disagree, but are fellow citizens in a republic, we are, you know, Serbs and Croats and Slovenes and, you know, in, in 1990, all shooting at each other and yelling and screaming at the top of our lungs about things that we didn't argue about 10 years earlier. But stoicism to me, this the, the Americans, think of like, you know, as we were going into the late 60s, early 70s, that if you were asked about the positive virtues of Americans, and yes, I'm fully aware, you know, that we were also a country that had serious racial wounds, you know, income inequality, deformations of capitalism, but also Americans, if you ask them about to say, we'd say, we're can-do people. We are, get the job done. You know, we get up and we just, you know, do it. Um, my father was born in 1918. He was a you know, greatest generation guy, you know, he used to say, you do what you have to do. That was just, if I, if I ever complained about anything, my father said, oh, you do what you have to do. That is gone. I mean, we have become, and, and I don't mean to minimize it by putting this way, but we're kind of this nation of screechy drama queens who are constantly, you know, and I think this, this goes back to the things that I've been writing about, about narcissism, about me, 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 and, you know, how was I heard and why, you know, how does this affect me and my grievances? And I just grew up around a generation of people who just didn't talk that way. I mean, sure, they'd sit at the bar at the American Legion or wherever they were, and they'd say, ah, you know, the damn government, <laughs> you know, those, those pinheads in Washington, you know, t- taking that bite out of my taxes and all of that stuff. But in the end, there was a basic respect for American institutions and an understanding of how fortunate we all were. To be here now, maybe that's part of the immigrant experience as well. You know, coming my all my grandparents were immigrants, and the idea that you know, anytime you complain about America, you'd get an answer of saying, "Yeah, well, should have been in Ireland in in 1890. Get a look at that, Pally." You know, <laughs> or, or as my father's, you know, there's a reason we left Greece. You know, I think that with affluence, high living standards, widespread boredom, we have just lost that, and I think. You know, if there's one value that I would really want to bring back to America, it's stoicism, because that is the insulation against all these grievance-based appeals, all these conspiracy theories. That's the inoculation that allows you when someone says, 
uh, Joe Biden's um, selling uranium to the commies, you know, that you sit there and you go, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, I'm not so sure about that. And the other thing is that led people to say, that's why people read newspapers. They just said, you know, I'm going to, once a day, I'm going to read a newspaper and I'm going to, you know, learn stuff. And then I'm going to go back to work and just get on with life instead of living in this constantly jacked in information stream that enervates and exhausts people. I mean, I keep telling people it's okay not to know everything all the time. I'm paid to have opinions. People literally pay me to say what I think. And I don't watch the news as much as you do. You know, that's that's the thing I think without that stoicism and with that constant instant emotionalism with our nerves being three inches above our skin, I don't think that better narratives are going to solve anything, Mike. Sorry, I didn't mean to be a downer there. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't think it is. I mean, I think, I mean, to even take that a, one step further, to sort of frame it in the language of Christian ethics, you can look at Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the way he talks about anxiety, the way he talks about this perspective on the world. It's like, you know, you worry about your clothes, you worry about the way you're provided for it. Look at how, and so I, I do think there's a real solid connection to that, that vision of an unanxious presence, an unanxious life. And when you think about particularly the challenges we have in the church right now, if a person is crucified with Christ, raised to newness of life, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, the right hand of God, you don't need artificial drama. Mm. You, you're already part of a drama that doesn't need to be fed with something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you return to the idea of the narrative, perhaps that is the narrative and now is the time to remind us of who we really are, that you are not just a person who's caught in the swirl of AI feeding you information that they think you would like. You are a person whose identity is rooted in Christ. And I think that's going to build the resilience that we need for the next generation. Because unfortunately, whereas Tom, you had the privilege of sitting next to your grandfathers and hearing their stories, we have a next generation who's growing up and they're not hearing as much from grandmas, they're hearing from YouTube or Mm -hmm. from whatever influence they have. So how do we find a way to restore Christ-like identity with resilience, with stoicism, with integrity in the next generation? I think it's got to be some spiritual formation someplace. I think it has to be done at the micro level by each one of us to people we love and care about and interact with on a daily basis. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've turned to people that I love, people, you know, in my community, in my church, in my family, and where they said something, and I've turned and I've said, shame on you. Shame on you. You know better than this. I said to one of my friends once, I said, you were, we grew, you were brought up better than this. <laughs> and, and he kind of reared back, and I said, think about what you just said. You know? and I, but I think, as well, we've lost because of our constant immersion in the and – I, and I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this in Screwtape, that the way you really – you know, grab the man's soul is to just immerse him in sensory experiences in the slipstream of constant reality, because you lose the sense that there were people before you and there are people that are going to come after you and that you live in a transcendent reality. Instead, everything is about, this is about me right now. You know, Donald Trump, I think, crystallized the personality that says there is no past, there is no future. There is only the next 10 minutes and how I navigate it for me. And I think that is just socially, I'll leave it to you, Reverend. It's you know, spiritually destructive, I think, but it's socially and politically poisonous to think that way. 
Okay, well, once again, Tom Nichols, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you so much for joining us here at The Bulletin, and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Joining me now for this conversation is Kate Shelnut, Editorial Director of News and Online Journalism for Christianity Today. Kate, thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. So this week you published a story about a controversy that's been going on in a ministry called Chi Alpha. Why don't we start kind of at the beginning of this? Because I think this is a very specific environment in terms of the kind of Christian community that it comes out of. And it's also a ministry, Chi Alpha, that many people won't have heard of. So why don't we start with what is Chi Alpha? How is it connected to sort of the Assemblies of God churches? And then tell us a little bit about this story in particular. Sure. Chi Alpha is a college ministry. I think like a lot of student ministries on college campuses where they do evangelism, worship, discipleship events on college campuses. They function with like a small group model. It's a co-ed organization, but a lot of times these small groups are divided up into young women, young men. And then they have ties to churches, to Assemblies of God churches in the area because the Assemblies of God sponsors the chapter. So Assemblies of God being the largest Pentecostal denomination in the country. And so a lot of times the goal would be for these Chi Alpha students, right, to go on to do student ministry in other contexts, maybe go on to be missionaries or church planters. They really see it as like a training ground. And that was the case among this group of Chi Alpha chapters in Texas. It was out of Sam Houston State University, which I knew from having lived in Houston. It's about an hour north of Houston in Huntsville, Texas, a state school. But it ended up being the place where the biggest Chi Alpha chapter in the country grew. And so they had this great model of like multiplication of involving students. And they used it to kind of spread some of the student leaders and staff from that chapter to some of the nearby chapters in San Antonio, College Station, Houston, and the universities there. So they grew this network And it's been the model that they've touted kind of nationally for how Mm -hmm. to organize these student ministry chapters. But as this was happening, the leaders of that Sam Houston chapter and some of the students had been tied with a man who was kind of a... I would say itinerant minister, but he didn't do a ton of traveling. So more like an independent minister, a guy who had been a mentor to some of the pastors and students involved. And he had what people have say, like a real childlike, joyful personality who was someone who was seen as being like full of the spirit. And he had been involved in some different youth ministry contexts, youth conferences, had gone to do youth training at churches in different places. And they saw him as, yeah, as a mentor, as a spiritual guru, and specifically someone who could counsel young men around same-sex desire, same-sex attraction, around masturbation, around issues of sexuality, 
a lot of times in those youth and student stages that can come up as a topic more so than in like the life of the average church. And they had been involving this man, I think dating back to 1989 or the early 1990s. So for decades, over 30 years in Chi Alpha. And over that time, he came to be convicted of child sexual abuse in the state of Alaska, where he had been traveling to work at a church during the summers, and yet continued his involvement. And in the past three weeks, since mid-April, more testimonies have come forward showing both him abusing, grooming, and victimizing young men involved in Chi Alpha before his conviction, as well as after his conviction, that even the men who the leaders knew and had defended him had called for leniency. So enough that they were involved in his legal fight in Alaska. He was he only ended up being imprisoned for like 90 days. So they knew that he had this conviction and background and yet continued to quote him, invite him to events, in some cases invite him to their churches, but kind of most significantly send students to live at his home in Houston or stay overnight for weekends, retreats, counseling. And his home was a place where he had a sauna, where he regularly invited men to go naked for spiritual talks in the sauna. He famously slept naked. And I heard from multiple people who even some had been sexually abused by him, some hadn't, but had been invited to sleep with him naked in his bed. So he had this kind of normalization of naked behavior. And then, of course, all of these stories coming forward, which has really raised the question, and this is kind of what the reporting was about, of he had been reported to Chi Alpha and to the Assemblies of God, which oversees and supports Chi Alpha. And yet, because he wasn't an official licensed minister with them, they didn't take action until the recent attention to the story. Yeah, his, his name is Daniel Savala. I, I guess one of my questions is, what exactly was this guy's ministry? Was it primarily ministry with students, you know, connected to Chi Alpha, but not officially part of the organization? He was sort of a freelance, you know, soul care counselor, but not licensed, not accredited. Is that correct? Right. And so I heard from members who knew him at the church in Alaska in the mid-90s who said he didn't really love being involved with families. He didn't really love being involved in the life of like a congregational church, but that he was seen as someone who had a real gift and focus with youth. So he was even brought in to this church in Alaska, as well as to churches in Europe, I think both in Wales, UK, and maybe even Romania too, where he was asked to come in and kind of do stuff over the summer with the kids, do discipleship. And that's kind of what he was known for. I knew he played the guitar, led worship a bit. He was known as like a big reader, like a C.S. Lewis fan, loved to like talk to high school youth age kids about literature, about God, and was seen as kind of someone who's really smart and wise. So I would say I've never known someone an equivalent of this in my church experience. And even asking people in Chi Alpha in other chapters of like, hey, would you just have a guy who was like a smart spiritual guy that some people knew like involved? And no one really had a model for who this type of person is. So if, if what I'm saying like doesn't ring true to you or to people listening, it's because I don't know that it's, it's quite a normal thing. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on, on many levels. What's the reaction been? You, you said these stories began emerging sometime in mid-April in a public way. What's the reaction of the churches, the pastors who've been connected to him, maybe even some of the pastors and churches who've been implicated by this story because of their connection and their awareness? So as I noted in the story, the first reaction that we saw from a few pastors who were directly connected to Daniel and who were seen as some of his biggest allies, supporters, promoters, people who would be the ones recommending and taking trips to visit him. They released statements that were like, I'm so grieved and shocked. Multiple people referred to him as like a master deceiver of essentially, oh, I had no idea that, you know, this abuse was happening. However, we know from documentation that even if they didn't know about the continued abuse, that they know that he was someone who had a conviction for child sexual abuse. And a lot of what we know about people who are pedophiles, who abuse kids, is that it's not a one-time thing and that it's a pretty fair assumption and a safe assumption to know that someone who has abused probably had abused before that and probably has a real strong likelihood, just psychologically we know, to do it again. So it's a really unwise and risky decision to have that person involved with youth and even these young college students. So what I was kind of encouraged by was to see multiple churches of these leaders who said, I had no idea, I was so shocked, say, wait a minute, and kind of call their bluff right away. Rather Mm. than just joining them, they said, actually, you're going to have to step down and we're going to have to investigate this. This is one thing that's happening at the Texas A&M chapter, which involved a man named Eli Stewart, who came out of that Sam Houston college and and was both started both a church and the Chi Alpha chapter at the school. So he is currently on leave while the church investigates and they he had kind of made a big announcement in front of his church and within days the church said, actually our elders are gonna look into this rather than buying his version of the story. He was someone who had advocated for leniency against Savala and who essentially accused the young men who had raised charges against him and and told these stories of making it up, of being bitter. And that's not what courts found. He pled guilty to one of the charges in a plea deal and had been charged with 11 counts of child sex abuse. So that's not a little thing. The other was a case, and I thought this was an encouraging example. It was a case in San Antonio, Gateway Church, uh, Assemblies of God congregation there, where they also have close ties to the local University of Texas at San Antonio, UTSA, chapter of Chi Alpha. And they had students, both current and former students who are members of their church, come to them and offer first-person testimonies of being abused by Daniel and having been connected to him by Chi Alpha. And I think that that had to be such a shocking experience to hear from multiple people across years that that had happened, that the church immediately launched their own internal investigation involving their own lawyers and made the decision to issue discipline against one of their pastors who was known to have known about the sex abuse conviction, he didn't agree to go along with their plans for restoration. And mm. so he was let go, you know, he, they mm. accepted his resignation and they came across and were saying like, 
hey, this isn't a guy who was employed by our church, but when one part of the church body suffers, we all suffer. And essentially really was just apologetic that it happened. They found out that their small groups were using material that quoted Daniel Savala, that they immediately removed that from their small group curricula and have kind of been really thorough in wanting to seek out and offer counseling and continue to investigate whether there were other places in their ministry that were touched. They stopped funding Chi Alpha chapters that had ties to him, and they were the ones who called for some of the UTSA staff to step down, which has happened in the days since my story came out. What is Daniel Savala's status right now? Is he facing any criminal charges at the moment? Is he still doing ministry? So I know that reports have been made because some of these allegations took place during a time when he would have been on probation, which you have pretty strict regulations if you're a sex offender on probation. Those are the three years after your conviction where you can't abuse anyone, but you're also like not supposed to be watching pornography. Um, you're not st- supposed to be in certain community settings that involve children and youth. And it seems that if the allegations that have come forward online are true, that he's raised those. So I think his parole officer had been informed and that there have been reports made to police. I'm not aware of charges being filed yet, but I know that because of the stories coming forward, that there are people who are in contact with authorities. That's the biggest question that I've got is like, why isn't this guy arrested yet? And I know that it can be a complicated process, but they're trying. Yeah. I thought yesterday, Beth Moore tweeted something that I thought was worth quoting. She said, uh, Beth Moore, the writer and, and Bible teacher, she says, I'd like to say as a general rule, no one pastoring, teaching, serving, mentoring, or ministering to you in any capacity needs to be inviting you into their hot tub, sauna, spa, shower, bath, or bed. For the love of all things holy, if your spiritual mentor suggests undressing, run for your life and tell someone you trust. And I think for a lot of people, you know, you hear that and in, in many ways it feels like the most common sense advice possible but you and I are we're talking before we began recording that this is not an isolated story. There are other examples such as you know Judge Paul Pressler, a significant figure in the SBC, and Kanakuk, a Christian camp that Nancy French and, and David French have done significant amount of reporting on showing similarly this this legacy going back decades of sexual abuse with similar patterns, hot tubs, sauna, young men, you know, how do you see this fitting in the sort of broader picture of of abuse that's emerged over the last several years? And what can churches be thinking about and taking away from a story like this to protect themselves and to protect their kids? Yeah. And I wanted to say, obviously, on its face, I agree with what Beth says, and those should be red flags for all of us. But I, the other thing, the kind of lesson from this is that When you're a victim, when you're in a group, when you're being groomed by someone who is predatory and who is a pedophile, there's a real voice in your head that might start saying, this isn't right. But then there's a counter voice that comes that's like, am I the only one who thinks this is wrong? Because you see what happens among other people who have been groomed and who have seen this behavior normalized on I think I mentioned that there was a forum that came forward to share for victims of Daniel Savala to share their stories. And so many of them 
said, you know, I felt like I was crazy for not going along with what everyone else seemed so happy to go along with. And even people in other Chi Alpha chapters who were, there was even groups of girls who talked about going into a sauna and they would all like take off their clothes, take off their tops. And one girl saying, I don't really want to do that, like skinny dip tonight or like take off my shirt in the sauna. And she was accused of like, this is how we build vulnerability. Like, this is our small group. How can you trust someone if you haven't seen them naked? That they would go on rationalizing and even like directly arguing with it. And so the other thing is that, one, there was a degree of exposure of just him being naked and kind of treating it as normal, but also him talking about it. Like I mentioned in the story, he talked about Adam and Eve were made naked and ashamed uh, and unashamed. And so we're claiming that. And if you have shame about being naked, like maybe you have a problem. And so it was like this twisting on people of, oh, you you can't masturbate next to me. Is it because you're gay? Of like the weird mental gymnastics, right, that were gone through to like rationalize the behavior in real time to the point that I think in your mind, you you think, oh, if this really was wrong, they wouldn't talk about it like this. Mm-hmm. And they would, because that's how grooming works. But I think it's hard to imagine being in a situation like that until you are, especially in an age where you're like spiritually vulnerable, you're told to trust this guy. I mean, we know him by his name and by his conviction, but they knew him in a different context. So I think that a lot of the cautions that we have in place that seem like overkill are really to prevent stuff like this from happening where a lot of people test those boundaries and their willingness to talk about sexual issues right away. One of the sources talked about how the first time he came to Daniel's house, Daniel opened the door and was like changing as they came over and was like, he knew we were coming over. Like he could have been changed or he could have waited and not opened the door. And so also really trusting people's gut of like, if it doesn't smell right, if it's not right. And a lot of people even put it in spiritual terms of like, I felt like the devil like took my discernment away when I walked into that home. And so I think it's really scary. All the things that you think, how could this happen that Mm -hmm. we know do happen because of the patterns that take place, especially among younger people. Yeah. That slow process. I mean, with grooming, it's that slow process of normalizing something that would initially cause that reaction for most people. And I think especially among Christians, you would be considered sexually immature, right? Mm -hmm. As an 18 year old or a 19 year old, even if you are no longer a minor, you're not someone who really knows what to do with your body, or maybe you haven't even been in an environment to talk about it. And so this is the first place that you've got that. And it's someone who's using it against you or using it for their own purposes. I did think one of the significant details in the story as well is that this is somebody who was neither an ordained minister, nor did he hold any, you know, particular licensing or credentialing as a counselor, you know, which, which I can imagine someone being in a position like that and sort of the organically having had relationships with pastors, people being like, oh, he's just a wise old soul, right? But this does sort of heighten the awareness of what the danger is because in a sense, something could go bad and he could simply move on to another community. There was no way for him to be stripped of his license Mm -hmm. if some of these things came forward because there was, in a sense, there was nothing for him to lose. I mean, obviously there was legally speaking, but he could simply move on to another community. He could, uh, it was very difficult to be held accountable when he was in that position. 
Kate Shelnut, thank you so much for your work on this difficult story. And thanks to all of you for listening. That's The Bulletin, and we will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. It's hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Additional design by Amy Jones. Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?